7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A rise in anti-Semitism across campuses prompted our data journalists to dig a little deeper into young Americans' knowledge of Jewish history. The results are alarming. And a few years ago, NFTs were all the craze. Some believed that they would transform art in the digital age. But then the frenzy died, and almost everyone stopped buying them. Except museums. First up, though... The Suez Canal is one of the busiest shipping routes in the world. It allows for convenient maritime trade between Asia and Europe by connecting the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. To give you a sense of just how important it is, a third of the world's enormous cargo ships will pass through this narrow archery, carrying an estimated 12% of global trade by volume. In 1956, it was the focal point of significant conflict. The Suez Canal, lifeline of Europe, in a dramatic sequence of events, became a cause of war when President Abdul Nasser announced its seizure by Egypt. Thrust, Israeli Israel, Britain and France failed to seize back control of the canal from Egypt, and it marked the humiliating end of imperial influence for the two European countries. Now, a new Suez crisis threatens the world economy one apparently tied up in another war. There's growing concern that the war in Gaza is beginning to spread to other parts of the Middle East in quite serious fashion. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defence editor. Since Friday, four of the world's biggest shipping container companies have paused or suspended their services in the Red Sea. That's the route through which traffic from the Suez Canal has to pass. On the 15th, we saw Maersk and Hapag Lloyd pause operations. CMA, CMG and MSC, these big shipping behemoths, followed suit the next day. There is really serious concern that a rising spate of attacks is effectively dislocating global trade. Tell me a bit more about that. So if you look at the Red Sea, it's this very narrow body of water that essentially sits between the Mediterranean and the Suez Canal on the north side and the Gulf of Aden and the Indian Ocean on the southern side. And this is really this absolutely vital waterway. To get into the Red Sea at the south, ships have to pass through something called the very narrow Bab al-Mandab Strait. Yemen is on one side, Eritrea is on the other side. 
Now, southern Yemen is currently controlled by Houthi fighters. The Houthis are a militia group, an esoteric sect of Shia Islam, and they are backed and armed and trained and equipped by Iran. And the group has a huge collection of anti-ship missiles that it has been using this month amid the war in Gaza, ostensibly in support of the Palestinians. And these strikes have been going on for many weeks, but they have been escalating really sharply in the last couple of days. Shashank, how sharply are we talking here? Run us through that timeline. So on December 15th, the Houthis threatened to attack one ship. They struck another one with a drone. And then, I think most remarkably, Ora, they launched two ballistic missiles at the Palatium 3, which is a Liberian flagship. And one of those missiles actually hit the vessel. Now, as someone who follows naval warfare, this is remarkable, right? This is the first ever use of an anti-ship ballistic missile. We've been talking about the Chinese developing these missiles. They're pretty advanced. Now, admittedly, the Houthis probably hit a stationary ship, but this is a really novel attack. And then the next day, on December 16th, an American vessel, the USS Kearney, which, by the way, I've spent some time on that vessel, it's a destroyer, that shot down 14 drones over the Red Sea, while a British ship, HMS Diamond, destroyed another attack drone coming in. So I think that gives you a sense that the missiles and the drones are flying thick and fast in the Red Sea right now and putting a chill on international shipping. Why have these attacks escalated now? Well, the Houthis are allied to Iran, but they have their own ideological reasons to attack Israel. Their motto includes the statement, death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews, so not exactly subtle. And they say they are going to target all ships heading to Israeli ports until food and medicine is delivered to Gaza. Most of these ships being attacked are neither headed to Israel nor under Israeli ownership, but this is affecting countries from around the world. So one of the vessels that was attacked by the Houthis was sailing under a Hong Kong flag. This is a very complex threat. The Houthis are an independent group, but they are supported by Iran. These missiles are all provided by Iran. What we understand is that intelligence for targeting ships is also provided by Iranian surveillance vessels in the region. It doesn't mean Iran is directing every single attack, but I think it is clear that Iran is backing this overall campaign against shipping in order to try and put pressure on Israel without getting into an all-out conflict with Israel, which would be disastrous for Iran and would be disastrous for Iran's allies in the region like Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen, and other Shia militia in Iraq and Syria. What does this all mean for global trade? It's pretty bad. These four companies that initially halted operations account for more than half of global container trade. The big names are probably going to be followed by many of the smaller firms, as well as dry bulk carriers and oil tanker firms. There's the direct impact. So revenue from the Suez Canal is a really big source of income for Egypt, which is already in the midst of a financial crisis. But overall, if vessels cannot use the Suez Canal and the Red Sea route, it means they have to go the long way round. If you look at a map, you will see that that means going all the way around the southern tip of Africa, which adds weeks to the overall journey time. That means it adds cost, it adds risk. And on top of that, if the Red Sea security crisis is perceived as threatening shipping in the nearby Arabian Sea as well, which is just to the south, that's an area through which maybe one third of global seaborne oil supply passes. The economic costs of that would be dramatically higher still. Shashank, is there anything that can be done? 
Right now, there is a multinational task force that's effectively led by the U.S. Navy that is operating off the Yemeni coast. And it's basically doing two things, Ora. It's it's stopping the Houthis from forcibly boarding ships. It's also shooting down drones and missiles that are headed for other ships. There are also French and British ships doing that sort of thing. I don't think that's enough because clearly some missiles are going to get through. And so what we may find is that the US and Israel are coming under increasing pressure to offensively go after the Houthis and strike them and their arsenal directly. They both have plans to attack depots and launchers and arsenals. They are very reluctant to do so. The US wants to focus on diplomacy, on deterring Iran. And Israel, of course, has its hands full, right? Israel is busy with the war in Gaza. It also has to keep an eye on the northern front with Hezbollah, which could also escalate. It doesn't really want to be sending its air force a thousand miles away, bombing Yemen, if it doesn't really have to do so. Now, you say that the Houthis claim that these attacks are a response to the war in Gaza. Does this threat to international trade increase the pressure on Israel to scale back on the wall? I think it puts a little bit of pressure on Israel, but the real pressure on Israel is coming from its main ally and supplier of arms, the United States. America is already insisting that the Israelis effectively wind up this phase of the war by the new year. We've heard that message delivered by Lloyd Austin, the US Defense Secretary, by Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor in recent days. They want to see fewer civilian casualties, a lower intensity operations. And I think the mistaken killing of these three Israeli hostages by the IDF in the last few days has heaped further pressure on Benjamin Netanyahu. The task for the Americans is now balancing their diplomacy between putting pressure on their own ally, Israel, to slow down and eventually stop this war in Gaza, whilst also putting pressure on Iran to lean on its ally, the Houthis, to end this reckless campaign of shipping attacks in the Red Sea. And that's going to be a very, very difficult balancing act. Shashank, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Last week, we reported on tensions over anti-Semitism on university campuses in America. A disastrous congressional hearing resulted in one president, Liz McGill of the University of Pennsylvania, resigning. Following on from that story, our data journalists sought to better understand the actual extent of anti-Semitism among young Americans. And what they found was striking. Young Americans appear to be remarkably ignorant about what is one of modern history's greatest crimes. Daniela Raz is a U.S. correspondent and data journalist at The Economist. A new poll from The Economist and YouGov found that about a fifth of young Americans think that the Holocaust is a myth. And this is far more than think the same in older age groups. Okay, before we get into the numbers, let's talk methodology. How did you carry out this poll? 
The Economist works with YouGov, which is an online pollster, and they surveyed a representative sample of American adults. They asked them a series of questions that would give us some sort of idea of how widespread certain anti-Semitic beliefs are. So one question was, do you agree or disagree with the statement, the Holocaust is a myth? And shockingly, 20% of those aged 18 to 29 said they think the Holocaust is a myth. And another 30% in that age group said they don't know whether the Holocaust is a myth. And similar proportions of young people said they thought the Holocaust was exaggerated. These numbers are not just remarkable on their own. What's really striking is how out of step the 18 to 29-year-olds are when we compare it to any other age group. You say that young people are out of step with other age groups. What did they think? Only 8% of respondents aged 30 to 44 thought the Holocaust was a myth. Again, that's compared to 20% of 18 to 29-year-olds. And quite literally 0% of respondents who were aged 65 and older agreed with the statement that the Holocaust was a myth. So this problem seems to be really concentrated among younger respondents. And why are young adults answering this question so differently? So first, a bit of a caveat. Every survey has what's called a margin of error. And roughly speaking, that tells you to what degree your results may differ from what people actually believe simply because of who you just so happen to reach out to in your survey. Now, even with that margin of error taken into account, there's still a significant gap between what younger people and older people seem to think about the Holocaust. There are various theories about why young people are more likely to think the Holocaust is a myth, but I'm not sure that any of them are really a smoking gun. So one theory is that it's education levels and that less educated people are more likely to doubt that the Holocaust happened. At least in this specific survey, the proportion of young respondents who said they thought the Holocaust is a myth was similar across all levels of education. Okay, so what's a more likely explanation then? Well, the fact that 30% of younger respondents in this survey said they don't know whether the Holocaust was a myth or not can in part be explained by the fact that younger people are just more likely to say they're not sure or don't know the answer to a lot of questions that pollsters ask them, not just this one. But another theory is that social media is a big part of the problem. So social media is definitely rife with conspiracy theories, and we know that some platforms are far worse at content moderation than others. You couple the prevalence of misinformation on these sites with the fact that a third of young Americans say they get their news from places like TikTok, and that young people say they trust information on social media as much as they trust traditional news organization, and you've got what kind of seems like a perfect storm. Okay, so Daniela, what should we take away from this? It's really unsatisfying to say this, but more research is definitely needed to understand these results. Like, why does it appear that young people are much more likely to think the Holocaust is a myth and another 30% of them say they aren't sure? We would want more surveys that see, you know, not only if these results can be replicated, but also more detailed surveys that try and understand more about who these people are who say it's a myth. You know, the Holocaust is something that comes up a lot. And it's this big historical reference point. It's not just a footnote in history. So understanding why younger Americans are more likely to say that such a seismic event is myth isn't something we should leave up to speculation. Daniela, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me.
A couple of years ago, the market for non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, was booming. Prices were skyrocketing, interest was everywhere. This was the tech that was going to come and revolutionize the art world. Max Norman is a culture correspondent for The Economist. NFTs are effectively digital certificates of ownership. They are encoded in the blockchain and let you buy and sell a digital asset, like an image or a GIF, on a trading platform, as if you were trading a crypto token. About two years ago, in this extraordinary frenzy of interest, an anonymous artist called Pac made headlines. They sold a single artwork called Merge, which was made up of thousands of parts, to a legion of buyers for a sum of $92 million. So fast forward to today, and the fall in values for NFTs has been dramatic. But despite a nearly 99% drop in buying volume from the January 2021 peak of nearly $3 billion, NFTs are beginning to find a place in the institutional art world, particularly in major museums. So you're saying that NFTs have gone out of fashion for everyone except the museums? Yeah, that's right. NFTs seem to kind of disappear once people thought everyone was going to be making NFTs, everything was going to have an NFT associated with it. Now no one thinks that. At the same time, though, it's, it's precisely after this bust that museums are starting to welcome them into their collections. Why they're doing this is an interesting question. So museums have a duty to capture the zeitgeist. They want to reflect the history of art, which has included this huge, crazy, dramatic experiment in making and particularly trading NFTs. At the same time, they're trying to appeal to new segments of the public and digital art, for which NFTs are a vehicle, oftentimes bring in new kinds of viewers. And now we see that NFTs and digital art in general are making their way into museum collections and occupying a more prominent place. Well, give me some examples. Who's picking up NFTs now? So the Whitney Museum in New York has had NFTs in their collection since 2018, actually. They were a bit ahead of the game. Now they own 30 And in the past year, a slew of major museums have acquired these things. The Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Pompidou Center, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art have all acquired NFTs. And perhaps most significantly, in October, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which is really the major contemporary art institution in the world, accepted the donation of two NFT-based works. So all of these institutions, they're beginning to acquire NFTs, but they've been turning down many of them, particularly during the peak of the speculative bubble. MoMA is wading uh, into this very, very cautiously. They're not even advertising the fact that works are technically NFTs. They're really trying to keep some distance, it seems, from the world of crypto, from Bitcoin, Ethereum, tech bros, and all the bad press that has been associated with them lately. Or you could see it as a kind of victory for NFTs, a victory for digital art in general, that it's gotten beyond its novelty status and is being considered by curators for its artistic merits, like any other piece of artwork, not just as this novelty that is coming from this new technology. Max, do you see this becoming the norm for museums, or are these examples more of an exception to the rule? Some curators have pointedly kept their distance and probably will continue to. I heard about one museum director in Texas who was offered NFTs by a donor, probably like many donors of artworks in search of a tax write-off, and the curator retorted, "Um, can I sell them and buy real art? Not all curators share that attitude, however. I think many, or probably all, are cautious because that's their job. Their job is to sort through what's out there and choose what matters. But if they see something good and worthwhile, interesting, something that, that stands alone as artwork, there's no reason that shouldn't join a museum's collection. And in general, 
I think we will see museums featuring digital art more prominently. It's just part of our world now. And contemporary art is beginning to reflect that in a serious way and will continue to. Max, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com. If you subscribe to Economist Podcast Plus, you should also let us know how you enjoyed this weekend's episode of our correspondence account of the downing of the passenger flight MH17. And if for some reason you still don't subscribe, what could you possibly be waiting for? Click the link in our show notes for more and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.